Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the USC Rochester School of Education. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. The two of us often fall on different sides of the big questions in schooling. Here, we talk through the educational issues of the day and search for deeper understanding and sometimes common ground. Today, we're going to talk about school boards and superintendents. Pedro, superintendents have been in the hot seat. Uh, School board members are facing uh, recalls at uh, what seems to be a historic rate. Let's try to make a little bit of sense out of all of this. What are you seeing and how are you thinking about it? Yeah, you know, I was once an elected school board member myself. And, you know, what's what's strange about this is in most communities, people don't even know who their school board members are um, because it's it's kind of this anonymous uh, job. I often say, uh, if you think of serving for school board is a stepping stone to higher office, you're mistaken because it's the last step. (laughs) Um, But now suddenly uh, they're at the fulcrum of of a lot of controversy. And... uh, I think many of them are overwhelmed, especially because uh, you know there have been threats and in some cases uh, violence at board meetings. Um, I, I know there are a lot of superintendents who have been quitting because they say it's not worth it, um, and and I, I think it's a sign that uh, you know that the polarization we've seen in other aspects of our country and in our politics have now invaded education for sure, mm. even at the local level. Let's try to unpack this a bit. Um, because I, you know, you and I, I mean, in the book, we talk about polarization and how that has obviously found its way into education like everything else. But I mean, the nation was pretty polarized two years ago, but it seems something over the last couple of years has changed for school boards and superintendents, at least from what I think we both hear from people in the field, certainly from the way it gets written about, say, in the education press. Any thoughts on what forces are at work and whether this has been more of an evolution or whether there really is some sharp departure going on? So, you know, we we may disagree on this, but out here in California, the anti-vaxxers have become more and more militant. Uh, They're angry. They're uh, showing up um, at school board meetings. They're showing up at schools. Um, They're against the mask. And um, I think... You know, the backlash against Biden's um, executive orders around um, uh, vaccines is increasing the reaction. And uh, a lot of times it plays out in schools. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think for, for me, I'd be curious how you, how, you know, how, how you respond to this. It seems to me in some sense, there's kind of a, a perfect storm of stuff going on. One, under COVID, I just feel like a lot of this has suddenly become more transparent to parents. Uh, parents have seen more of what's happening in schools, uh, more of these things have moved online. And so parents, whether they see their kid's teacher working really hard or whether they see a lesson plan or something that frustrates them, it's more right in their face. Uh, second, as you mentioned, there's all of these COVID-related fights. There's fights about social distancing and masking and school closures and vaccinations now. And then third, there's obviously uh, the racial disputes, the stuff that comes under critical race theory umbrella or anti-racist education. And it seems to me somehow that all three of these things pushing into each other over the last year or two, and right in the middle of that storm are these superintendents and school boards who are trying to deal in a lot of communities with people who just come at it in 
profound from profoundly different points yeah. of view. And you know, I think that most board members and superintendents really haven't been trained for how to communicate with the public, um, how to how to mediate these controversies, and so it's it's overwhelming. I, you know, we I've been talking to superintendents quite a bit, and um, many are thinking about retiring early because of, of this, um, and a lot of them really don't have a clear sense of how to get through this, and. Um, you know, they say, this is not what we signed up for. So, um, you know, another, we've done these podcasts um, a few times and, and what strikes me is that often people are, who find themselves on the hot seat are looking to us for guidance. Okay, well, how do we help people to find some common <laughs> ground, right? Uh, how do we help people to learn how to engage in civil debate? And uh, you know, I, I really don't have the answer to that. I mean, just because you and I can do it doesn't mean that uh, <laughs> that that's uh, uh, catching on. And, and, you know, and as you and I like say time after time, we don't actually have to run anything. You know, you're not on a board anymore. Neither of us actually has to run a school system. Um, you know, you have to run an ed school. So, you know, my condolences <laughs> on that. Different kind of challenge. Uh, you know, I think for me, uh, the school board and the superintendent dynamics actually are a little different. I mean, when we, think, when we think about school boards, I don't think people always realize that you're exactly right. School boards, by design, are, <laughs> which is strange, uh, a century ago, the progressives worked to make them non-political, to take the politics out of school governance. Now, I mean, that's just, I don't know how you take the politics out of school governance. I mean, we're talking about these are people's kids. Uh, we're dealing with issues from sex education to what is or isn't in the canon. I mean, these are questions where politics is going to bleed in. But because school board elections are off cycle, because school board elections are nonpartisan, a lot of people, unless you either work for a school district or you're a real like kind of local activist, are unlikely to show up. So we routinely get these school board elect turnouts of 5%, 8%, where the vast majority of the community not only doesn't know, as you say, who's on the school board, but nine out of 10 people didn't even show up to vote one way or the other. So all of a sudden, school board governance is playing out in an environment where a lot of people who maybe had been kind of tuned out are suddenly tuning in. And the system, neither the school boards nor the system is really ready for it. No, no, I, I, I agree. Um... When I, when I served, I served in Berkeley, and um, about a month after I got elected, I realized I had made a mistake. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was, you know, difficult. And, and I remember I, most of the problem I had at the time was from the unions that would, and a lot of times they would threaten me. They'd say, if you don't, you know, vote this way, we're not going to support you next time. And I said, listen, I'm never going to run again. So <laughs> you can't use that as a threat. You're going to have to actually make arguments that make sense and not use the threat of not voting for me because you won't have that chance. But, you know, then we were dealing largely with issues around budgets. This is different. And um, I actually believe that education should be a nonpartisan issue. But I think that the, the, a lot of these debates are about values. And um, they, they come down to how we, you know, what kind of measures we think are needed to uh, deal with this pandemic and, and to ensure safety in schools. And, um, 
I don't know. I don't know how you get people to be reasonable um, on these issues because fear and anger seem to be uh, prevailing right now. One of the things that I've long had doubts about is the um, advisability of some of the reforms that have been intended to let the sunlight in. So school boards operate most cases, most states under these pretty stringent sunlight laws where if two school board members want to go to the bathroom at the same time, uh, they got to file forms in triplicate and post a note, you know. So it becomes very hard for school boards to sit down and actually talk through issues um, or hash stuff out, except under very particular circumstances. When they do a lot of prior notice that it's going to be a school board retreat or around a hiring decision, day to day, they just don't have a lot of opportunity to sit down, listen, talk um, without being under the microscope. Um, seems to me that we need to rethink the advisability of some of these policies. If we actually want boards to be able to operate um, like a responsible body where people can talk and share ideas, seems to me sometimes you gotta let people actually do it away from the microphones where they can sit in a room and hash things out with some degree of privacy. I don't know, curious, uh, yeah. again, you've actually done this. I'm curious if you think that's nuts or how you think about it. Just to play devil's advocate, you know, the, the reason why we have those laws is to ensure transparency, right? Particularly around financial decisions, because as we both know, um, you know, there, there's often corruption and nepotism in these districts and friends are getting contracts. So, you know, some people look to, in a lot of cities, school board, the, the school district is the largest employer. So uh, people are not just thinking about kids, they're thinking about jobs and money. Um, and so that's a big part of the reasons for the public meeting laws. But I, I get your point, right? That if, if we don't have the ability to um, discuss tough issues um, without that public scrutiny, um, it, it makes it very hard to come up with, uh, you know, reasonable policies that work in the best interest of the community. But um, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that one. Um, but I know there's a, there's, there's good reason given the track record to uh, be, be careful about uh, <laughs> giving them too much privacy. Yeah, no, I get that. But, but, you know, but it's right. This performative thing. I mean, a lot of these school board meetings wind up, they might as well be having the meeting via Twitter. Right. It's a whole bunch of, you know, people standing up for 120 seconds to rant their agenda item and then school board members rant a couple of little things. And I, I totally hear your caution about uh, inside dealing. I mean, we get enough of that right now, I fear. But, um, you know, in, in another part of this whole school board dynamic is, as our friend Terry Moe, professor at Stanford has argued, is that one of the realities is that because school board turnout is very low and because most people don't vote and because political parties aren't involved, uh, local interests wind up. So sometimes the school board will be driven because there is a zoning issue and everybody's up in arms over that. But a lot of times day to day, the folks who are most active in school board elections are the people who work for the school district. Right. Um, most particularly the teachers association because it's their paycheck. And so they work the phone banks and they endorse and they do the signs. And what you wind up with, which is boards, which have a, a very high degree of sensitivity to the association if they're not dominated by the association. 
And I think a lot of folks, at least on my side of the aisle, were really struck by this, say, during school closures and how hard it was to get school boards to seem to want to lead on reopening and how hesitant they were to say anything that would cross the unions. And I wonder how much of the frustration with school boards is a product of, at least in a lot of, say, you know, right-leaning or maybe some purple communities, the sense that, hey, wait a minute, the school boards are actually not representing the parents in the community. They seem to be more interested in representing the employees. Yeah. I think that that might be true in some of the big urban districts um, where the unions have a lot of um, sway. You know, my sense in a lot of um, small towns and uh, rural areas is it doesn't work like that. Mm. Now, it, 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 you, what you often see there is that people get elected and uh, it's their, their little uh, source of power and they serve for way too long. And, um, <laughs> and that's another problem that I often see in some places. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's the reason why I think it's, it is important for there to be public participation. But, you know, again, we need, people need to be informed and they need to um, be reasonable about what the issues are and keep the interests of kids at the forefront. Um, that's a lot to ask, but I, I think right now, it, what, what really concerns me is that um, when you see so much conflict playing out in the schools, how does that affect kids? How does it affect the morale of the staff and the ability of schools to function? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's what they, and you know, and the point you made a few minutes back that also we're seeing threats um, against school board members and superintendents, we're seeing death threats in some cases, and whether they're being threatened because they're doing something that leans quote unquote left or leans quote unquote right. I mean, that's a place where all of us should be able to join arms and say, that ain't how we engage. Right. But, you know, I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to listen and either agree with or disagree with what you're saying. But nobody should be in this business of threatening people. That, that this is, it's destructive and poisonous under all circumstances, but especially in institutions which are asking to take the lead on educating our kids to be responsible citizens. Absolutely. And, you know, I, what I knew as a school board member is people knew where I lived. I would run into them at the gas station. And, and so these school board members, especially in small towns, are very vulnerable because, you know, they're part of the community. And, and so, again, to, we've got to find a way to kind of tamp down the, um, the, the vitriol and, and, and get people thinking more about what's in the community interest, what's in the interest of our schools and our kids. I, I get worried because uh, the anger I see in some communities is is really dangerous. Totally agree. Um, at the same time, uh, and I guess I'd be curious whether you think this is going too far or not. Uh, there was, you know, for instance, you probably remember there was the Oakley School Board wound up resigning because they were taped mocking parents in the community who wanted the schools open. And they were saying, oh, these precious parents, they want their convenience. And I, you know, that's, it's not a one-off um, over the last 18 months. We've seen, you know, a number of incidents like that. If you see a half dozen of those showing up on YouTube, I tend to suspect there's probably a bunch more out there that aren't getting reported. And, you, you know, I am absolutely comfortable saying, even a school board has things that I think are not so. I don't want anybody threatening them, threatening their children. That's out of bounds. 
period. Yeah. At the same time, school board members have to live up to the responsibilities of their office. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, it concerned me here in LA. I thought schools stayed closed way too long. And it did seem like um, it was largely because um, the union was against reopening. Um, and so that's the reason why, you know, parents also have a right to be heard and to be organized and to express their views. And, um, and I think it's, it's important for people to know how these decisions are being made and, and what are the implications of them? Because too often um, they are done in these uh, late night meetings in front of very few people. And they do have um, real far, you know, ramifications for what happens in schools. And, you know, there are many parents that, that suffered quite a bit with uh, school closing because uh, they're working and they have no one to supervise their kids. So it was a real dilemma. But um, I, what I, what I, in that case, though, I, I think the states tended to not play a leadership role. Back when it was about reopening or not, I didn't see a lot of states stepping up and giving clear guidance on how to reopen and when to reopen. Mm -hmm. Given everything we've just said about school boards, how is the situation of superintendents similar or different? I mean, I think a lot of what we've said obviously applies to superintendents, but where is the situation a little different? You know, I'm not sure. I think that um, superintendents tend to be more knowledgeable <laughs> about, you know, the, the whole business of running schools. Um, you know, we don't expect board members to be. Um, and they, they tend to be um, able to understand how to uh, weigh the different um, points of view and perspectives. But ultimately, they end up getting into making decisions that people interpret as political too. And so they can piss people off as well. <laughs> um, and not just parents or community, but their, their staff. So what I'm seeing is a lot of superintendents um, also uh, reacting to the pressure. At, at USC, 85 of the current superintendents are our alumni. And what we're hearing from many of them is they are thinking about early retirement. Mm. You obviously run an ed school where you train superintendents. So, you know, push back. I've written a lot. I've dabbled a lot in, in leadership training over the, you know, over the last couple of decades. For me, I mean, it's, it's funny because it feels like there's a lot of cognitive dissonance here. On the one hand, uh, we talk a lot in preparing education leaders about the importance of uh, engaging your constituents, of stakeholder buy-in of uh, leadership that encompasses. Um, on the other hand, I've often been unimpressed by many superintendents in their actual ability to do this. I don't really blame them, but I don't think there's a lot of mentoring on how you do this. I don't think systems are actually configured in ways to help them do this. I think good superintendents tend to wake up at six in the morning and get home at eight at night from a community meeting, and all day long they're putting out fires. And there's just not a lot of opportunity, even if they're inclined, to really try to absorb different perspectives. I feel like ed school and ed leadership training tends to bring a bunch of very strong biases uh, to who's right and who's wrong on some of these debates. So when I hear superintendents talk about it on a panel or when I'm, when I'm interviewing them, they always make it a point to say, obviously, I want to engage 
engage everybody in the community. And that's a priority. In practice, when I've worked with superintendents or observed them, I find that to be much less true. And it seems often that when I chat with them, there's kind of a reflexive set of habits where they know that these guys are the good guys and those guys are the bad guys. And the conversation is not, how do I really hear the truth of the different parties, but how do I manage around the bad guys? I don't know. So that, that was a lot. I'm curious. Push back yeah. on me where I'm nuts. So, you know, it's, it's funny. Yesterday I had a conversation with um, a, a guy. He's a graduate from our program. He became a superintendent at the age of 21 <laughs> in a small town in Michigan. And um, where he was superintendent, principal, custodian, because they didn't have a budget for it. <laughs> and um, he went from that small town to become superintendent in another town and later moved from Michigan to California. And he's been doing it for over 50 years. So I asked him, what do you think about the, uh, what's going on right now with all these controversies? He said, you know, if you know your community, you, you can also bring out your allies. You can, you can try to figure mm -hmm. out how to reason with people or who can reason with them. Um, and what I appreciated about him was the kind of wisdom that he's gotten um, from his leadership role. I'm thinking like, well, how do we as a university that prepares superintendents prepare them for this? Mm. And I think, you know, the hardest thing to teach someone is good judgment, discretion, <laughs> um, how to, um, um, you know, work with people that are hostile <laughs> or angry. <laughs> but these are really important leadership skills, especially right now. And um, I think that those who don't have those kinds of abilities will find it uh, a job that's just not, you know, tenable after a while. And part of it too is, right, the way we've created the job is the promotion ladder for superintendents is, you know, do a lot of stuff so you can get recognized so you can move on to a bigger, better job. And that means you're supposed to hit the ground running, which tends to work at cross purposes. Right. with really having a chance to get to know the community, understand its distinctive character and build trust. You know, one of the things that strikes me is all of these anti-critical race theory groups have sprung up that I engage with, you know, so few of them, do they feel like they actually have anybody in the school board or the superintendent who's actually going to listen to them? So I think a lot of the impetus is they feel like they're on the side looking in. And if superintendents had ways to kind of anticipate and reach out to these folks earlier, some of this stuff might not come to the boiling point that it does. Yeah, but I'm also seeing, you know, teachers getting fired for teaching, not critical race theory, but teaching about race. Um, I saw there was a case in Texas, another one in Tennessee where a teacher was, was fired uh, because he, was, he had his students reading Between the World and Me by Tennessee Coates. This is although, although actually the Tennessee case is interesting because it turns out that the teacher, when called to carpet, said there's no other perspective on these issues. So he was teaching systemic racism. Um, you're right. If a teacher is fired for assigning a book, whether I'm a fan of that book or not, that's a huge problem. Yeah, that's problematic. I would agree. We have to make sure that kids are not just being exposed to one perspective, because if we want them to be critical thinkers, they have to be able to be able to read widely so um but I, well you know it's playing out differently in different different places i didn't know that that background on the tennessee case 
but your larger point is absolutely right. And, and when you're a school board and you've got folks who want to make sure that coach is included and you've got folks who want to make sure that perspectives that push back on coach are included and it's, it's a balancing act. And suddenly as a superintendent and school board, you've got people with very strong feelings and they're all sure that you're, you know, they all want you to be on their side. Yeah. I, I see, right now I see a lot more activity about banning certain things than ensuring um, pluralism. <laughs> well, we've got we've got to do more to make sure we're ensuring pluralism. Uh, any any words of wisdom um, to uh, for folks who are like, all right, well, this sounds like a mess. I, I think, uh, we, and we've said this before. I think the majority of people are reasonable. Um, and if we focus on that majority, uh, on uh, particularly as it pertains to values that we agree on, um, that hopefully that'll help us get through some of this. But maybe that's wishful thinking. <laughs> you know what? Even if it's wishful thinking, it's uh, you know I think it's still probably a healthy, healthy thing to keep in mind. Yeah. It's been great talking to you again, Rick, and uh, look forward to the next time. Absolutely, Pedro. Take care, pal. The two of us have much more to say, but we're out of time for today. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, conversations on schooling. And thanks to our producers, Tracy Shera and Olivia Shaw. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like to see us discuss by sending an email to podcast at api.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time.